A.W. Tozer has famously said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I'm reminded of that kind of afresh every single year when I read the State of Theology report. Since uh, 2014, LifeWay Research has conducted a survey in partnership with Ligonier Ministries that seeks to kind of take the theological temperature of the average American churchgoer. And the latest report was just released last month. And what's most interesting about the findings in the report is what we learn from evangelicals. Now, to be labeled an evangelical in the report, you don't just self-identify. To be classified this way, you have to respond as a strongly agreed person with the following four statements. First of all, the Bible's the highest authority for what I believe. Secondly, it's very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Thirdly, Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. And fourthly, only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. Now, when you pose a series of theological and ethical questions to that category of people, you would expect to see some pretty encouraging responses. And this is indeed the case in some areas. For instance, 91% of those who identified as evangelical on the report, which means they affirmed those four things, believe that abortion is a sin. Also, 94% of those surveyed say sex outside of traditional marriage is a sin. However, what seems to be reflected in the report is that those who would profess to be evangelicals know a whole lot more about what God requires of them than they do the God who requires it. And perhaps there could be many reasons for this. Perhaps over the last hundred years or so, there's been a lot more teaching and preaching on ethical issues, how we're to behave, how we're to live according to the Bible, than who God is. And there's nothing wrong with preaching and teaching and learning about the ethical implications of the Bible, Pastor Thad's going to start a class on that in December on Christian ethics. But a deeper dive into the survey reveals some pretty discouraging statistics about the knowledge of God. A significant number of evangelicals surveyed have a profound misunderstanding, it seems, about who God is and what he's like. For instance, Almost three out of four people surveyed who were self-identified as evangelicals, affirming the authority of the Bible and the exclusivity of Christ, claim that Jesus is the first and greatest being that was created by God, 73%. More than half, 58%, believe that God accepts the worship of all religions. How can they affirm that and affirm that only those who trust in Jesus Christ the Savior will receive eternal salvation? More than half, 56%, agree that worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. More than half, 55%, believe that the Holy Spirit is a force, not a person. More than half, 55%, agree that everyone sins a little bit, but we are mostly good by nature. More than half, 53%, disagree with the claim that even the smallest sin deserves eternal punishment. Almost half, 46%, disagree that every Christian has an obligation to join a local church. 
Almost half, 44%, say that Jesus was a great teacher, but that he was not God. And as it relates particularly to our topic this morning, almost one-third, 29%, agreed with the statement that God learns and adapts to different circumstances with only 43% of those who disagreed. Now, to be clear, our goal in all of this is not to pass a test or a survey as though theological depth and knowledge could be measured by one's answers on a survey. Theological knowledge is, first of all, doctrinal, but then it's experiential. It's actually relating to the God we know and living for him and living as in his presence all the time. But it is interesting that one-third of surveyed, self-professed evangelicals believe in some sense that God changes, that he learns, that he adapts, that he's learning new information all the time and he's changing his responses based upon those changing circumstances. Now let me say something that might surprise you. The Bible, if not read carefully, can give you that idea. We read one of those texts just a moment ago. There's a God who is with his people Israel, just talking with Moses on Mount Sinai. Moses is delayed a long time. The people of Israel grow frustrated. They say, we need gods who can lead us out here and lead us forward. And so Aaron engages in idolatry with the people. Moses, God already knows what's going on down there. He informs Moses, hey, you need to go down. Your people are committing idolatry. And so Moses intercedes. God relents. Did God not change? What does Scripture teach about God's unchanging character? We've been considering the question in the Westminster Catechism, question number four, what is God? Which answers, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And this morning we come to the unchangeableness of God. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchanging. Theologically, the word is immutability. The immutability of God affirms that God does not change. Think of the word mutation or mutable. That implies someone who does change or mutate. But God is immutable. He does not change. He does not mutate. He lives forever without alteration or variation or fluctuation in his nature and character. He always remains the same. And we're going to see this attribute in action in Exodus 32 this morning, specifically verses 7 to 14, as Moses intercedes for the people of Israel. Now, as Hugo reminded us, most of us are familiar with the events of chapter 32. Moses is on Mount Sinai in the presence of God, and the people are at the base of the mountain committing sinful idolatry. God's people are sinning. They're building an idol, a golden calf, and they're worshiping the golden calf. And God says to Moses, go down there because I'm about to destroy them because of their sin. And then Moses prays, and according to verse 15, God relented and did not bring on his people the disaster that he had promised. Some translations say in verse 14 that God repented. Other translations say the Lord changed his mind. God said he would destroy him. He decided not to do so. Now, we just affirmed 
that God is unchanging. And in fact, there are other scriptures that affirm the same thing. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. 1 Samuel 15, 29. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. God doesn't change his mind, is what Numbers 23 says. It's what 1 Samuel 15 says. Is it what Exodus 32 says? So did God change his mind? What's going on here in Exodus 32, 14? And in order to answer that question, we need to pay a special attention to what's said leading up to verse 14. Specifically, verse 11, 12, and 13. And those are the verses we're going to consider before we get to 14. So first of all, let's consider verse 11 and the first point. God is unchanging in his perfections. Look at verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Psalm 102, verse 25 to 27, says that God is unchanging in his nature. We read, in the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They, that is the heavens, will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away, but you are the same and your years have no end. So God is not like the heavens that change and will one day pass out of existence in their present form. The Lord is not like that. The heavens will change like a robe. God never has to change like a robe. Malachi 3.6 For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And if we take that verse and put it over top of Exodus 32, it would seem that the reason that God relents is not because he changes, but because it's part of his not changing. We'll talk about that more as we get to it. Hebrews 13.8 Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. James 1.17, which we read in our congregational reading earlier, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now, Exodus 32.11 teaches us the very same thing. Moses begins his prayer with the phrase, O Lord! Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Yahweh, the eternal, self-existent God. He is appealing to the unchanging character of the eternal God and all the perfections of His character. He calls on the covenant name of God, which represents God's unchanging revelation of Himself that He gave back in Exodus 3. I am who I am. Not I will be who I will be, but I am who I am. Permanent, unchanging. And Moses goes on in verse 11 to acknowledge God's wrath while appealing to God's love. He acknowledges that God is powerful and mighty while also being merciful and gracious. And he acknowledges God's glory in pleading for God's goodness. Moses' prayer of, O oh Lord, is plainly grounded in the fact that he believes God is unchanging in his character and in his perfections. God's essence, dear ones, does not change. He cannot alter who he is in himself. 
We human beings, we have our good days and our bad days. God never has an off day. He doesn't have a bad day. He doesn't have a day. His nature and his being are constant. God's attributes do not change. He's always all-powerful, always all-knowing, always all-loving. He's never unjust. He's never unholy. He's never untrue. Think about it with me. If God's perfections could change, it would mean that he's not perfect now. And that would mean that he could change either for the better or for the worse, neither of which would be good for us. If God could change for the worst, we would have no foundation for our faith, and we would have a very dim hope on which to hold. But if God could change for the better, that would mean he wasn't the best possible being in the first place. How could we be sure later if he's not the best possible being now? So mark it down. God is not malleable. He's not open. He's not making progress. He's not gradually learning. And he's not suddenly growing. And because of this, God is consistent in every aspect of his being and in his dealings with us. And therefore, God can be trusted. Why is Moses praying? Because he believes in a God who can be trusted. He believes in a God who doesn't change. He believes in a God who is able to execute all of his holy will. A God who can change can never be trusted. What he says today may not be true tomorrow. But his promises, dear ones, is not yes and no. They're not even yes and maybe. They're yes and amen, according to 2 Corinthians 1.19. Secondly, not only is God unchanging in his perfections, he's unchanging in his purposes. Look at verse 12. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Now we read again in Psalm 33, verse 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Proverbs 19:21. many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Isaiah 40, verse 24, the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my purpose. God is unchanging in his purposes. And again, in verse 12 of Exodus 32, we see this idea reflected. Moses appeals to the purpose of God. He says, you brought your people out of Egypt for your praise among the Egyptians so that they would know that you are truly God. But if you kill them, the Egyptians are going to laugh you to scorn. See, he appeals to the unchanging purpose of God to display his glory among his people. And so therefore he says, save them for your name's sake and your glory among the nations rather than killing them. That purpose, Moses says, has not changed, Lord. And therefore he appeals to God on the basis of it. Moses is relaying in prayer a truth that reverberates throughout God's word as we have seen, that God's purposes do not change. God's will does not change. He never changes his mind. He never has a change of heart. Now, the reason our plans often change is because 
we are influenced by circumstances. We learn new things or we encounter new things. We never know for sure what will happen around the corner. Life never turns out quite the way we expect and we have to change our plans accordingly. But God, on the other hand, cannot be influenced by circumstance. He never has an emergency. Exodus 32 was not an emergency for God. He informed Moses about it. Go down to the people. They're doing things. He never makes a bad choice. You know what one word that you will never find in God's vocabulary is? Oops. Praise the Lord. Oops is not part of God's vocabulary. Because of his eternal decree, his infinite knowledge of all things, things always turn out the way he expects. Moses knows that, that the aims and the purposes of God do not undergo amendment or adjustment, and that the aims of God are always achieved, and so he prays to God, God, remember that you saved your people for your glory, and your purposes don't change, so answer the prayer and relent of your wrath. Moses knows, and may God help us never to forget, that God governs every single detail of this planet for the glory of his name. What God purposes is what God does, and his purposes are completely unchanging. So mark this down as well. When God purposes something, it's going to happen. His purposes are unchanging. Thirdly, God is unchanging in his promises. God is unchanging in his promises. Look at verse 13. Moses again says to the Lord, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Now, is Moses having to tell God to remember because God has a bad memory? You know, God's lived a long time. He's eternal. And you know as we get older, our memories aren't what they used to be. Well, God doesn't age, and his memory is not like our memory. We have a creaturely fallen memory. He has an eternal, omniscient creator memory. He knows all things at all times. So no, Moses is not saying, hey, God, do you remember what you said to Abraham? No, he's calling God upon God's promise as a way to enact what he's praying about. So Moses says, Lord, do you remember that you swore to Abraham, you made a covenant with Abraham himself, that you would multiply this offspring to be as large as the stars in the sky, well, that ain't going to happen if you kill him. And you would have violated your covenant with Abraham. So God is appealing, or sorry, Moses is appealing to God on the basis of his unchanging covenant with Abraham. That according to Genesis 15, he swore to his own death. Remember that scene where he's making that covenant with Abraham and he tells him to cut the animals in two as a sign of the covenant getting ratified and God himself walks through the midst of the animals? What's the image there? The image is that let it be done to me as I have done to these animals if I ever violate this covenant. In other words, let me die as though that were possible. But God is communicating to Abraham that he will keep his covenant regardless of what happens. So God is unchanging in his promises. We read this in Numbers 23 and 1 Samuel 15, as we already read. So when Moses says, remember to God, 
He says, remember to the omniscient God who knows and ordains all things. Moses says, don't forget Abraham. Don't forget Isaac. Don't forget Israel. Don't forget the promises that you made to the patriarchs that you swore by your own word and your own life that you would keep and you cannot go back on your word because your promises are unchanging. So Moses knows that God always keeps his promises. Psalm 89.34 says that he will never violate his covenant or alter what his lips have uttered. Isn't it interesting, brothers and sisters, that the very passage in the Old Testament that sparks the most discussion about whether or not God changes, Moses bases his entire prayer on the fact that God will never change. (laughs) He will never change in his perfections. He's, oh Lord, he's Yahweh, he's the covenant God. He will never change in his purposes to display his glory through his people. He will never change in his promises or violate his covenant. So Moses' whole prayer is built on the unchanging nature and character of God. And yet, is he asking God to change? So if God is unchanging in his perfections, in his purposes, and his promises, what are we to make of verse 14? And so we come to point number four. God is unfolding in his plans. God is unfolding in his plans. I want you to notice something in verse 14. Let's read it again. The Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Notice, the text does not say God changed what he thought. But rather, he changed the course of action that he said he would take. Look at verse 10 for that description of that course of action. Now, therefore, let me alone, God says, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. God's immutability does not mean that God has no movement. Scripture presents God actively involved in the affairs of this world. There is always change going on around God as he interacts with his creation. But the change is always around him, and in his relationships to men, there is no change in his perfections, purposes, or promises. So when God repents... The change is not in him. It's in our relationship to him. There are changes in us and in God's dealings with us, but there are never changes in God himself. God may will a change without ever changing his will. J.A. Packer puts it this way in his book, Knowing God. It's true that there is a group of texts which speak of God as repenting. The reference in each case is to a reversal of God's previous treatment of particular men consequent upon their reaction to that treatment. But there is no suggestion that this reaction was not foreseen or that it took God by surprise or was not provided for in his eternal plan. No change in his eternal purpose is implied when he brings to deal with a man in a new way. So when we come to Exodus 32, we must realize that God is not surprised by what is taking place here. This is clear from the passage itself. Verse 7, the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. It's not a surprise to God that this has happened. God is not surprised when his people sin, nor when Moses prays. God's will, as is settled here, as it is anywhere else in Scripture, but this story shows that God's plan is always unfolding in time. In verse 7, God says to Moses, after they sin, go down. So if God was going to destroy the Israelites on the spot, why would he say that to Moses? 
The answer is that God was planning to spare his people by inciting Moses to mediate for them. In verses 9 and 10, we see God judges men in their sin, but then God provides a mediator for sinners to stand in the gap for them. Often, when God seems to change his mind, he's simply operating according to the terms of his covenant. Remember that the covenant God makes with his people of Israel has conditions to it. If you do this, God will do that. Obedience leads to blessing. Disobedience brings judgment. These covenant conditions explain why God sometimes seems to repent. He's operating according to the covenant that he set up with the people. Moses is the covenant mediator who goes back and forth between God and his people, the one who stands before the people on God's behalf and stands before God on the people's behalf. God set it up that way. It was part of his eternal unchanging plan. God will demonstrate his wrath against the people of Israel unless a man steps in and mediates for them. This is exactly the same divine commentary on this incident that we are given in Psalm 106, verse 24. Listen to how the Holy Spirit, through the psalmist, interprets what's happening in Exodus 32. Therefore, he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. See, there is no contradiction, brothers and sisters, between what we see here and God's unchanging perfections, purposes, promises. God is holy and will punish sin. And at the same time, He is loving and merciful and will be true to the promises He has made in His covenant to save His sinful people. How does He do it? How is God true to His unchanging perfection? How is God true to His unchanging promise? How is God true to His unchanging purpose while fulfilling all of it? He does it through an unfolding plan. He does it by appointing a mediator to stand in the gap for sinners. Moses is not changing the plan that God ordained. He is fulfilling the plan that God ordained. From man's perspective, God changed his mind. And this is what the Bible or what theologians call an anthropomorphism. It's a way of describing God's activity that makes sense to us. We can understand, okay, God redirected course here. He went a different way. But just because he went a different way doesn't mean he changed in his nature. Doesn't mean he changed who he was. It means he responded to the conditions of his covenant. From man's perspective, God changed his mind. But from God's perspective, he did what he always planned to do. Behold the marvel and glory of our sovereign God. Think of Jonah for a similar illustration. God sent Jonah to Nineveh to proclaim what? Forty days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Nineveh was going to be destroyed because of their sin in a little over a month. That's what God said he would do. And at the same time, what did he do? He sent a prophet to tell him that. Why did he do that? Because God always sends a mediator standing in the gap for sinners. It's the story of the Bible. It's the same picture we see here. God was judging the Ninevites and Jonah for their sin. At the same time, he was sending a preacher to warn them. After spending a few days in the digestive system of a rather large fish, Jonah does, in fact, warn them. Jonah says in Jonah 3.10, when God saw what they did, 
how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Same picture as we get in Exodus 32. God judges sin, but he provides a mediator through whom he will display mercy. And dear ones, I have good news for you. This is the gospel. The gospel is built on the unchanging perfections, purposes, and promises of God. Because in our sin, you and I stand under his judgment as a holy God who's compelled by the perfection of his character to condemn us and to destroy us in our sin. Death is not a hypothetical possibility for any of us. It is a sure and certain penalty, a concrete reality for you and me in our sin. But praise be to God. He has provided a mediator. The unchangeable Son of God took on a changeable humanity in, in order that we might, who are changing and mutable and sinful, might inherit a state of immutability never to sin again in glorification. Now listen to me. The Son of God, who as God is unchangeable in His essence, nevertheless took upon Himself a real human nature that is changeable. This is why Luke 2.52 says, Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. How can Jesus grow in wisdom? Because Jesus is the God-man. And He grew in wisdom. He obeyed. For us, he, in, he lived in our place as a human, experiencing all of the changing circumstances and difficulties of life. And nevertheless, he remained faithful to God, obedient to his law the entirety of his life, so that we, who were so fallible and so changeable, might be able to inherit a state in which we will never be able to sin again. A state of kind of a human immutability of sorts. Not a divine immutability, but a human immutability where God gives us the ability in glorification to never be able to sin again. Oh, what a day that will be when we are able to never sin again. The very one we despise is the only one who can stand before God on our behalf. The people of Israel, they despise Moses. Why is he taking so long? Who is this Moses? Little did they know, he's the only one that's saving your life right now. God says to Moses, he says to Jesus, as we wallow in our idolatry down here, rising up to eat, playing our whole lives away, ignoring our God, doing what we want, God says, go down, Jesus, because your people have become corrupt and turned away to all sorts of idolatry and immorality. And unless you intercede for them, we're going to destroy them in our wrath. And Jesus comes down, lives in our place, stands in the gap as a substitute for sinners, and because of his sacrifice, God relents of his wrath for you and for me if we trust in him. And this is all because God does not change. And because God does not change, our salvation is secure. Because not, God will never violate the terms of his covenant. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not might be. 
will be because God's covenant is secure and God's nature is unchanging. As Romans 11 says, God's call is irrevocable. If one child of God could ever eventually perish, then God would be immutable and we might all well perish. Then no gospel promise could ever be true, but God's word would be untrustworthy. But because God is unchanging, he is unchanging in his love for us. God's love for you doesn't go up and down every day. What kind of rock does that put under your feet? When all around your soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Why? Because he's a solid rock. He doesn't change. His love doesn't change. Because he cannot be anything else for those who are in Christ, but an absolutely all-forgiving, loving father to them. A.W. Tozer again comments on what peace we should derive from this. What peace it brings, he writes, to the Christian's heart to realize that our Heavenly Father never differs from Himself. In coming to Him at any time, we need not wonder whether we shall find Him in a receptive mood. You feel that way sometimes coming to Him in prayer? Uh, is He mad at me right now? Now, God can be displeased with His children, but it is full of love even in His displeasure. So you never have to wonder if He's going to be receptive to His child who is coming to Him. He's always receptive to misery and need, Tozer says, as well as to love and faith. He does not keep office hours, nor set aside periods when he shall see no one. Neither does he change his mind about anything. Today, this moment, he feels toward his creatures, toward babies, toward the sick, the fallen, the sinful, exactly as he did when he sent his only begotten son into the world to die for mankind. God never changes his moods or cools off in his affections or loses his enthusiasm. Praise the Lord for an unchanging God. I'm kind of sick of the changing world, aren't you? I'm sick of my change. I'm sick of change. Change is hard for everybody. But the way that we endure is by being anchored to a God who doesn't change. Live upon this attribute of God, dear one. There is nothing this side of heaven but what is changeable. We are tossed up and down from one change to another. But you don't have to faint or be weary when in all this you have an unchangeable God to stand beside you, over you, under you, and with you. This is our God. He is unchangeable in His perfections, in His promises, in His purposes even as he's unfolding his plan, which is working out a salvation for his people that is marvelous and wonderful. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you do not change, that there is in you as the Father of lights no variation or shadow due to change. You are the same, Jesus, yesterday, today, and forever, and we praise you that you are the same because we are not we are not. We go up and down and back and forth, tossed to and fro by the waves of life, by the struggles of life, by the sinfulness in our own hearts. And yet you don't change. You're not like us. You're not a man that you change. And we thank you that you're not. Because on this 
unchanging God that you are, we find hope, we find stability, we find a rock on which to build our lives so that no matter what happens around us or what happens in us, nothing will change about the most important thing in our life, which is you and your commitment to your people and your unchanging purposes and unchanging promises for us in Christ. We worship you today as the unchanging God. We exalt that you don't learn or adapt. We praise you that your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. We praise you that you are executing your perfect eternal decree across all time and space, and your purposes will never be thwarted. They will always stand. It gives us hope for our lives. It gives us hope for our families. It gives us hope for our nation. It gives us hope for the world that we have a God who doesn't change. So we worship you. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together and